Welcome everyone to the Economics Design Podcast. My name is Kiefer Zhang, and today I'm joined by Michael Arnold from Mighty Bear Games. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Hey, Kiefer, thanks for having me. Awesome. So to, to give a little bit of context on the project, Mighty Action Heroes is a multiplayer third-person battle royale from Mighty Bear Games, and it's the first of many games in the Mighty Net universe. So the project has a mix of both on and off-chain heroes, equipment, and currencies uh, with accessible gameplay for both free-to-play and NFT users. So a lot to dig into here. And so to, to kick us off, Michael, could you uh, give a little bit of an introduction about yourself? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I'm Michael. Um, originally from Germany, but based in Japan for the last four years. So I've been here for some time. Uh, I joined Mighty Bear Games about a year ago. So I joined January last year. Um, and Mighty Bear Games is based in Singapore. I'm, I'm, I'm based in Japan. So spending time between the, the two of the countries. Um, and I joined to basically help the studio move from Web 2 to Web 3. Um, because it is a Web2 company and we will go back uh, no deeper into this uh, later. Um, and my my role is basically Web3 lead. So anything that touches Web3, um, crypto tokens, NFT economy, ecosystem design, uh, but also on the engineering front, um, I'm helping basically there on the product side. Um, before Mighty Bear Games, actually the way I got into crypto was um, through a company called Double Jump Tokyo in Japan. And I joined them in early 2019, and we built a game called My Crypto Heroes, which back then was the number one blockchain game in like 2018, 19, and I guess early 2020 until Axie grew bigger. Um, and I, I worked there as an engineer um, and helped there with the front end, um, but also a bit on the NFT economic side of things because I actually studied economics in university. And uh, yeah, and then later on did a bit of freelancing with DAOs, so contributed to Yield Guild games early on as an advisor um, and then also worked with another blockchain gaming DAO called Blackpool Finance on the engineering side but also on the investment side so um, yeah they also invest in in blockchain games and you know equity and token rounds and that was end of 2021 and uh, you know kind of realized there's so much attention and capital in the space but still no great games um, so that's when I basically decided to go back to building games and you know that's why I joined Mighty Bear Games. Yeah, I love that background. I get to wear lots of different hats and uh, in there still get to leverage a bit of your economics uh, school learnings into a more practical crypto context. Okay. Yeah, so today I'd like to talk about both your thoughts on Web3 game economies in a general sense, uh, but also about some choices that you're making specifically when designing the Mighty Action Heroes economy. And so first, starting off on the more general side of things. Uh, the term sustainable economies is a really big buzzword right now when, when talking about Web3 game economies in general. Um, but what that actually means from person to person, person I, I find varies a lot. And so from your perspective, how do you define economic sustainability? Yeah, so I mean, I guess as a definition, right, I would say uh, games should not rely on new users to be sustainable. Um, I think we see a lot of games where you know, the, the prices can only be sustained of the items and the token as long as new users are coming in. And I think by definition, that's not very sustainable because games won't grow forever. I think you need to have a game ecosystem that can be sustainable with, uh, you know, stagnant amount of users, um, which, you know, if, if that is the case and you need some kind of consumption uh, in a game economy. So I think that is very important. Um, I guess generally, you know, as a as a disclaimer, it's very hard to build sustainable economies. 
Um, it's incredibly hard. And I think what also the first thing you need to get right is to just build a good game. It sounds sounds very simple, but you know, first of all, you need a fun game because if you have a fun game that players generally enjoy, then players are happy to spend money for just you know consumption and not just for investment. Uh, that brings me to the next point. I think you know, people talk about faucets and sinks and uh, what what are good sinks in that case. I guess faucets is an easy one. You know, when you uh, give players rewards, those are faucets. This is how your assets get into the ecosystem. Um, but with sinks, uh, there there's different kind of sinks. And uh, I had this conversation with my friend uh, Ryan that used to be at Delphi, and uh, he's now with Limit Break, uh, building Digidaigaku and the ecosystem. Um, he talked about something called net positive and net negative sinks. So basically, net positive sinks are basically where you um, are burning tokens or spending money with the expectation to get more in the future. So, you know, it's net positive. It's actually more in circulation later. Uh, and net negative things, meaning that you spend some, but you get less back in the future or, or nothing because it's just pure consumption. Uh, the latter is obviously better um, because it gets tokens, NFTs out of circulation, and that's what you want with sinks. Um, and the first one, if it's a net positive sink, it's kind of like a delayed inflation. Um, I think a good example there is the Axie Infinity SLP breeding mechanism. So, you know, users are spending or burning SLP to breed axes, which is a great SLP sync. But they do this because the axes that they breed uh, it basically can earn more SLP later on as they play. So the SLP, as long as the, the new axes that are bred, as long as they make more SLP than what they cost, people keep breeding. So that's that's what I would call a net positive thing because yeah, you know, short term it's a great way to burn SLP, but I think long term it will create more axes, more SLP being generated, and then I guess just you know SLP inflation down the line, which I think we've seen in the ecosystem. Um, and Axie has responded, or the Axie team has responded well to this. So I think they've they've you know figured that out how to fight that. But that was some definitely a good learning I think for everybody in the ecosystem. Um, so yeah, so I think. You definitely need actual consumption in the game, um, so not just you know investment things. So you need like buying a battle pass uh, or just just spending things without you know wanting anything in return. That's the ideal case, um, and yeah, that's why I think also you just need fun games first of all. Yeah, it's really important to understand what where the fundamental demand is coming from uh, in any game, and also where that demand is coming from on a recurring basis. An example of this that I, I really like to go back to is the EVE Online economy, because there's this whole complex supply chain that different users fit into with a different set of skills. For But in at the very top of this, it's the creation of the ships, and there's this fundamental demand of the people that are willing to buy the completed ships just because they want to save time and just go and, and blow some people up. Um, and there's that the demand is recurring because there's that ship destruction that is going to make it so that even within even if the number of players doesn't actually grow, there's still a reason for the for the continual creation of ships that justifies the rest of the supply chain. So that that yeah, the, absolutely that demand yeah. need to understand that demand and uh, and why it would be continuous. And then another another part you mentioned there around the, like the net positive and, and net negative things that's that's crucially important to understand as well when we're talking about uh, these these things with real money on the line. And part of that also ties into the different types of personas and why they're participating in a certain sync. 
And so not, not all players are interested in the same types of sinks and especially like a value extractor type of player. They're especially only going to be looking uh, for, for sinks that are going to uh, help their ability to, to extract more, more value. And maybe it means that they'd be willing to, to spend more now, but it'd be more in the, if they're getting more out in the future, but that doesn't actually serve the value of a sink, that's going to be net positive versus net negative, as you said. Yeah. And I also wanted to add to, to what I said earlier, it's really hard to, to see the long-term effects of your sinks. So when you design an ecosystem, maybe the first one, two, even three years, things might go really well, but then the fourth year and fifth year, you see the long-term effects. Um, so the, I just wanted to also add the time component to this. That's why it's incredibly hard to get it right. Um, but I agree, like you need to build sinks uh, and also faucets for the different kind of player personas. I guess also similar to EVE Online, I think they do it really well um, with the game My Crypto Heroes that uh, I've built before uh, joining Mighty Bear Games. Uh, we had four personas in, in our ecosystem. So we called them the Warriors. That's one of them. So the, the players that like to compete in, in player versus player tournaments, they are spending a lot of money to be competitive and, and they just want to win they don't want to grind then the farmers we call them and they're basically grinders um they they go into quests they level up heroes they level up weapons uh, they provide basically the weapons for the warriors uh and then the traders are the ones that speculate on let's say the new meta um or <clears throat> just like trying to time the market or doing market making um and then the creators are the ones i think that's like a bit zooming out um so creators is the, is the fourth one um not necessarily creating in the game. I mean, if you have user generated, generated content, then yeah, it will be in the game. But I think also the content creators and people um, discussing a lot on Discord, I think that is also really an important persona that needs to be uh, addressed. And I think different personas like different uh, kind of spending. I think the warriors are a bit more on the on the investing side and the traders, I think. I guess also warriors are on the, on the you know actual spending and consumption side because their return is they're winning, they have good status, they enjoy the game, right? And I think the farmers are the more, I'd say more extracting uh, persona group that just likes to spend a lot of money and basically, you know, trade their money for for NFTs uh, or tokens that they can sell. And I think it's it's okay as long as I think you have a good ratio among those personas. Obviously, not every player can be a farmer um, because then nobody's buying from them, right? Um, I think a lot of players could be a warrior um, if that's what you want, but I think you also want to have farmers because it's it just creates a better economy, which I think is something we want to optimize for in Web3 games. Absolutely. And yeah, it's really interesting to think about how with Web3, you're adding in these other, by adding in this other financial layer, you're adding in all these other potential personas. And so we talked about yeah, a lot of these personas that are financial in nature. This is also uh, on top of and maybe combined with some of the more traditional uh, player personas where you're still thinking about your socializer, achiever, killer, kind of the more more traditional archetypes and adding on this new options or new layers um, in terms of how players actually are able to, to interact with the game experience. And so uh, moving on a, a little bit to another question, how are you thinking about the experiences of Web 2 and Web 3 players and the role that each of them play in the economy? And uh, will there be a really strong attempt to try to push Web2 players to engage uh, with the blockchain components for Mighty Action Heroes? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the entire industry is still figuring this out. Um, the way I think about this is 
like the difference between Web 2 and Web 3 players, I believe, is the mindset and how they approach the games. So I think the Web 3 mindset is more of like they want co-ownership. Uh, they want to invest. They want to co-build this, this project together. Um, and they enjoy different things, I think, than the Web 2 crowd. Um, I think the Web 2 players, they just want to enjoy you know, a good game, like a polished game, um, and enjoy a good game experience, have fun. Um, and spend for consumption, you know, going back to, to, uh, what good things are. And I think it's really difficult, but important to build a game that appeals to both the web three crowd and the web two crowd. Because if it's too web two heavy, then the web three crowd won't be interested either. Uh, and likewise, if it's too web three heavy, the web two crowd will just be completely lost. Right. Um, so I think the way we look at this is that the game should be playable for the web two users. So they should play without. The need to spend anything there's going to be free uh heroes in the game um and the web3 feature is kind of like an advanced opt-in feature so you could think of it as like you know even in your profile you click on advanced and then there's also your, your wallet info and all that other web3 uh stuff that uh, the web3 crowd uh wants to see and needs to see but the web2 crowd doesn't want to see um and i think in terms of like opt-in uh, we want to give the Web3 users and I guess Web2 users that also care about more of the financial side of things. Uh, we want to give them also options and tools to enjoy that. So for example, we have crafting, um, we're doing some crafting experiments with, with a bonding curve. Um, so kind of do it a bit more financialized. Um, we hope that users are going to do market making. So we have the crafting materials are ERC 1155 tokens. Um, so, you know, they're going to be freely tradable. And I think just generally, you know, when the meta changes, I guess the value of some heroes and, and, and weapons changes as well. So there's going to be a lot of interesting elements for the Web3 users, while the Web2 users can enjoy just a good game. Um, so I think that, that, that is a difficult, how do I say, a difficult combination to get right. Um, I think, so a game that I think does it well is Sleepagachi, if you've uh, seen that. So it's mm -hmm. kind of like a step in for sleeping. Um, I've played, oh, like I've, I'm playing, you don't really play it. You just sleep and, and, and build your room. Right. But I've used it for the last few, uh, uh, months actually. And, um, there's no, there are no crypto elements in there yet, but I just like how they appeal to web two crowd, but they have kind of like an order book with their, uh, items. So basically you have this meta room and you can, um, kind of decorate that meta room with like a bed and a shelf. And you can actually look at the order book of like, what are the current bids and the current asks and the spread for that and the, the changes in the price. Um, and that is a good example where there's nothing crypto there yet, but it appeals to the Web3 crowd because there's financialization in there and there's some kind of speculation and market changes. And uh, yeah, so I think that that is, is important to get right. And of course, like the onboarding. So you want to have normal email, password onboarding, ideally a wallet under the hood. Um, big fan of sequence wallet, for example. Um, I think they, they're doing really well with Skyweaver. Um, maybe we need something even more simple than that. Um, so I think that's still something for us to explore. And that's something we are actively working on right now at Mighty Bear Games as well. Yeah. So there's something in there that I, I find interesting and kind of want to pick out. Um, so you mentioned that when the meta changes that the expectation is that that's going to impact the market and shift demand for different types of assets and that also implies that there's some sort of decision making process in what needs uh what needs to change uh and in in case there's um that input is from something that the studio does versus 
um, just changes in how the community chooses to interact with the existing assets. Um, but for the changes that the studio does, I'm curious to your thoughts on if that's something that should be like a centralized decision or more of a decentralized decision, and what are the implications of that? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, so I'd, I'd actually had uh, my Crypto Heroes, the previous game that I was working on. Um, we had a policy where we don't buff or nerf uh, heroes because it's users' property, and you know, similar to when you buy a house, like the government should not make your windows smaller, for example. Um, so we didn't want to change any of the stats because you know somebody spends a lot of money for a legendary hero. Um, if you nerf it, that that would be you know people would be upset, for example. Um, but what we saw is that actually the meta becomes very stagnant if you don't change uh, the stats or if you don't introduce the mechanics. And if the meta is stagnant, there's no no active trading involved, and I think new users won't have a good time coming in either. And then also the you know the, the early adopters will sit on all the strong heroes and kind of set the price. So I think that is very bad for an ecosystem. Uh, from what we've learned, um, I think League of Legends is a great example where every a season is is kind of new. There's kind of like a, the the map changes a little bit. Um, the heroes are a bit adjusted. The weapons sometimes get overworked and new weapons get introduced. Um, and I think that changes a lot. And I think that's great. And that's something similar you want to have uh, for a blockchain game, I believe, because this also actively like it encourages experimentation with new builds being like com combinations of heroes and weapons um which leads to active trading which leads to speculation and it just it just keeps the the economy active and as a developer that's what we want because you know we our revenue stream or one of the revenue streams is uh, secondary uh revenues from from trading right so um or revenues from like you know secondary market trading and uh, so that's one thing. Um, but the question is, like, how much can you change it, right, as a developer? Um, I think it's important to set the right expectations for the users. So if the users know, if this hero is too strong, we're going to nerf that hero. So if the users know that and the policy is clear, then the users that invest in very strong heroes, again, League of Legends is a good example because usually new heroes that get introduced are very overpowered, but get nerfed like a few weeks in, usually. Um, so if that if that is clear to the community, then users can price this into their investment decisions, if that makes sense. Um, and I think a, a clear policy, again, like you need to state what that looks like. Um, and we're kind of thinking of, you know, if you have a win rate between 55 and 45 percent of a hero, I think that is a good range as an example. Um, and if a hero falls above or below that win rate, then, you know, the nerf hammer needs to drop uh, or it needs to be buffed if it's too weak. So if I think, and if you uh, also share the stats properly with the community, I think the community you know, will understand. Um, at the same time, I think it's difficult to uh, give the balancing decisions to the community, to like a DAO vote, um, because different segments of the community might have you know, a different agenda as well. So for example, the whales that sit on a lot of assets, they might just vote for the legendary uh, heroes to be always the strongest, for example. Um, that might not necessarily be good for the ecosystem. Um, that's something, again, back to my crypto heroes, we discussed a lot. It's like, yes, as a user that wants to spend a lot of uh, ETH for heroes, um, that user wants to have the strongest heroes. But if the heroes are too strong and new players don't have fun coming in, the community uh, or the player base of the game is not growing. So that should not be the desirable outcome for a whale either, because a whale wants to have a large game, right? 
Um, but sometimes players don't really see the long-term implications. And I think that's why it's important for a game designer and a game developer to kind of make a good uh, judgment call of what is good for, for everybody um, and not just for one specific player group. Um, but again, getting that right is incredibly hard. Yeah, those are some awesome points. Uh, yeah, I think a lot about how to set up short versus long-term incentive alignment in whoever is making yeah. decisions. And and often, yeah, kind of the, the easier answer is retain that control um, in the studio. Um, but for those that are kind of dead set on, on a high level of decentralization at some point, that becomes a very hard challenge to take on of how you're going to maintain that incentive alignment uh, so that decisions are made in ways that benefit the long uh, the overall ecosystem in the long term when these balancing decisions take on um, not just the the gameplay implications which can be hard enough sometimes to, to figure out but also this this financial layer where there's another motivation behind people pushing for for one change or another um, yeah so very very glad we got into that and so looking a little bit more at the faucets and sinks in economy design, um, so what are some specific ways to implement faucets and sinks in Web3 games and some potential challenges in that implementation? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think faucets are the easier ones. So basically it's rewards from just playing well. So either be ranking highly in the leaderboards or after every single match. Um, and also, you know, just as a, as a heads up, most of my answers are towards competitive games because that's what Mighty Action Heroes is. And I also personally believe that's, uh, what makes the best, uh, NFT ecosystem game. I think competitive games, uh, are a good fit just generally for NFTs and, and blockchain games. Um, in terms of things, they're a bit more difficult, of course. So we talked about, uh, net positive and net negative things, um, concrete examples, what this could be. So we, like the design of a battle pass um i think marvel snap is a good example here how they do this um so basically users buy a battle pass and then as they progress through the game they can unlock uh more more rewards that could be off-chain rewards but also on-chain rewards maybe you do a very rare on-chain reward at the end of the battle pass um and it can only be acquired in that specific season um, and I think the first few levels should be off-chain rewards because if it's if it's on-chain rewards, then I think that will be just a, too much of a supply uh, for specific assets. I also like the idea of just generally making the battle pass an NFT. I think that is an interesting angle um, because we have our ecosystem NFT that's uh, called the the Mighty Net Genesis Pass and also the Big Bear Syndicate uh, profile picture NFTs. Um, and what we do with them is basically you can link those nfts is kind of like a, a process of like you know locking your nfts for a certain amount of time and you link the nfts and you get rewards and we're thinking right now what we can do with this in the future um so that might be some alpha but again this is just what we think about i think it could be interesting to kind of give battle pass nfts for users that just don't really want to play but have a lot of assets that they can passively lock so those users will get uh, the battle pass. Maybe they have to play a few sessions to kind of, you know, actually unlock it. So that's not entirely passive. Um, and then they can sell the battle passes uh, on the marketplace. Ideally in a way where like if a Web2 user wants to buy a battle pass with like an in-game, in-app purchase in the game, um, that instead of buying this from us as a studio, it buys it from the other player from the marketplace. But it looks very smooth, which is like pressing a button, paying with fiat, and then that might, you know, sweep the floor. Uh, of the battle passes automatically on the on the secondary markets 
that's something that I would want to see. Um, I think that is also, you know, we talked about Web 2 and Web 3 players. I think that is a good approach to um, bridge both. Um, and yeah, so again, back to what are good things. I think battle passes are a great thing. It helps also just with retention generally and kind of like a meta progression. Um, and I think also just shortcuts where you can spend some kind of, let's say, soft currency or hard currency um, to level up your hero, level up your weapons just to save time. I think those are very simple, easy things. But of course, they're not like, what uh, do you say, not very sustainable, right? Once at some point you have max level heroes and then that sync is, is gone for a specific player. Um, so then it's also, you know, keep in mind, this thing is not forever. And I think crafting is also a good one. Um, we have a lot of crafting elements because again, that appeals, I think to the web three audience and the trader audience a lot. Um, but also crafting for off chain as well, because I think that is a great mechanism for web two players to kind of retain and something to look forward to, um, with also a lot of chance. And if you want less chance, uh, you can spend some money to kind of increase the odds of success for the crafting. Um, yeah, so just going to kind of give a bit of like, uh, concrete examples. And I think the challenge is kind of like, you need to find the right things for the right audience. So I think consumption things are better for the web two audience and maybe not so popular for the web three crowd because they want to have these investment things. Um, and, uh, I think the timing is also very important. So I think maybe you have more faucets in the beginning for growth. So let's get, you know, you give your users more rewards, uh, early on. And then later on you add more things, but getting that timing right is incredibly difficult. Um, examples for this is I think Steppen is a great example where they, um, basically had an economy where a lot of folks were very excited to come in and, and earn. Um, and they wanted to add, uh, sinks there as well, like real consumption sinks, but they just grew too fast for, for them to properly build it. And I think it kind of spiraled out of control and then they hit inflation before they could actually, uh, implement proper sinks. Um, and yeah, I think Axie is also a, a similar thing. I think we talked about this earlier. I think Axie and, and Stepan are quite similar in their ecosystem. But I think those, you know, hyper growth, uh, designed ecosystems are a good example for, uh, what I was talking about. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of interesting things in there. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of, um, kind of interplay between those, the types of players that are time rich, cash poor, and those that are, uh, essentially vice versa and have, um, and how they're interacting with each other and around kind of that that battle pass model of maybe some that are there more for just an, as an investment, but they're not super engaged um, in playing. Um, and and so it's, it's kind of interesting to think about how to monetize these users. Um, and if there's if you might be missing out on some retention in in some game not necessarily saying this is about mighty bear but more in general of with a with nft battle passes depending on the way it's implemented um can potentially run into some problems where if you're trying to get a specific player to uh that that is maybe a whale player to engage with the game more and potentially spend more um, if they have the ability to outsource the actual gameplay to somebody else who's and if that person's the person that's actually getting hooked to the game, but they're not really the spender themselves, um, it's it's a little bit less of a, of a whale retention tool. Um, but then, yeah, you have on, on the other side the um, 
you might keep them in the system based on kind of a feeling of, of NFT ownership, sort of like the, uh, if, if you're still able to make them feel connected to the ecosystem and community, that, that itself is, is a retention tool. So a lot, a lot of different ways that that can work and potential trade-offs. Yeah, I think it's important that there's still some kind of accomplishment that also whales have, right? You need some kind of meta progression within your account that you can't outsource. Because I believe if you can outsource everything, you just buy progress, it's not very rewarding and not very interesting. So I think that you'll need to be careful not to make everything purchasable. Uh, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And something else you touched on as well that I found interesting is bringing chance into the equation. Um, and ran- chance randomness is, is obviously a, a, been a large part of, of games, game design. It's It makes the experience more interesting to players. Um, but there's also a component of this that is potentially uh, problematic on the legal side. And um, disclaimer, not a lawyer. I don't think you are either. Um, and this, none of this is, is legal advice, but, um, there you, you can't run into some scenarios. And again, talking about, uh, blockchain games in general, not necessarily Mighty Bear, um, where if you have a, a ran, a financial input and a financial output, but that financial output is randomized can potentially run afoul of, of gambling laws. Um, and so, I'm interested in hearing your not legal opinion about, about how to navigate that in the Web3 space. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, no legal advice, also no financial advice whatsoever in this episode. Um, so we have a good legal counsel um, that helps us with, with these questions. Singapore is actually quite strict on the gambling laws as well. Um, so I guess just, and there's there's also security law that we need to navigate. I think that's another one. Um, around tokens and NFTs and all this, and and we are working very hard to, um, you know, stay on the good side of all this. Um, actually, custody law is another big one. When we implemented our, you know, for example, if you have NFT import and export, let's say into the game, you don't want to be a custodian of the company. That's something we're also navigating a lot. But you know, just just going to the gambling side of things. Um, yes. So if you have some, you know, something off value, and there's a chance of getting something off value back. Um, I think that the definition is, uh, what was it again? It's, uh, consideration, chance and price consideration is the, 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 the buy-in, right? Chance is the, the chance of randomness and price is the reward of value. Um, the way we think about this is you kind of, if you can abstract this a bit, um, of let's say there's no conservation, let's say it's for free and you have direct, for example. So. Let's say you, um, I think my crypto heroes was a good example because also in Japan, it's very strict. So, you know, we regulate in the Japanese market and the way we built this is that the heroes themselves, uh, you purchase them on a secondary and you play with the heroes. And then every time you go on a quest, there's a chance you get uh, a weapon out of this. Um, but joining that quest, that, that process of joining the quest itself is free. You buy the hero first to buy it, uh, to, to play the quest, but the purchasing of the hero and the joining of the quest are two different actions. Um, so that's how we looked at this. And then, you know, getting the, the random weapon, then um, the weapon is worth something. Um, but also at the same time, you can't sell the weapon in the game. So there happens to be this other website called OpenSea that, uh, you know, takes your NFTs and you can you can sell them there. But the game itself does not facilitate buying or selling of, of NFTs. So that is another layer of like, you know, you can't buy and sell this here, but there's this other website that is unrelated to us where you can do that. 
So I think there is, it's still very gray. Um, and uh, navigating this is very difficult and honestly quite costly on the on the legal side of things. Um, and when, you know, whenever we have a big update, we run this by our lawyers and then our lawyers is like, okay, this could be an issue and you know, this is good. So we kind of change sometimes game design, um, and also like infrastructure design, honestly, to just be more on the, on the legal side of things. Um, because again, uh, so we had our NFT, uh, linking feature where first of all, you wanted to like send them into a, into a contract while the NFTs are linked. Right. But uh, that is a custody issue. So we kind of rebuild that contract and now basically the NFTs, they stay in your wallet and just the transfer from method of the NFT gets overwritten while it's being linked. Um, so that in that case, we're not a custodian uh, and that's more legal. So that's just an example how like we respond to what lawyers tell us. Um, but again, it's such an early industry and it's just good to learn from each other. I'll see how other games do it. Um, yeah, and I think I guess just generally, if you're a small game and a small studio, it's less of an issue compared to like let's say if you're Axie. But I think you want to set uh, the foundation right because once you grow, you have a lot of other problems you're working on and figuring out. So that's why we're also leaning more towards staying on the on the very legal side of things, uh, building this. Yeah, some great insights there. Uh, that's that's definitely some things that a lot of teams need to hire a lot of lawyers to figure out and it does have a major impact on game and economy design and still figuring out the best practice of that and likely will shift depending on on your jurisdiction um, and so another area um, i want to dig into is uh, especially as with the recent rise in in ai is how does the potential use of bots uh, impact the way that you're designing mighty bears economy yeah i think especially with ai this is going to be a a very important topic. Um, I think, again, that's one of the reasons why I like competitive games. Um, you actually need to play well and be among the top of the leaderboards to earn and to to get rewards. Um, so I'm a big believer that not everybody in the game should be able to earn because that is, I mean, that's just pre-programmed to have a lot of bots in the game, right? It becomes very profitable to spin up a lot of bots that can be in the middle of the pack and earn a lot. I don't think that will work well. Um, so the way we think about this is we give rewards to users that either rank highly in the leaderboards, let's say top 10%, 20%, 30%, 30%, um, and also that hold NFTs. So if you hold NFTs, you just get more rewards compared to if you play with an off-chain hero the entire time. Um, because also I think Elon Musk tries to tackle this on Twitter, basically saying, you know, if you buy the blue check mark for, I think it's, it's $8 or $11 now, I don't know what the current price is, um, then that kind of prevents bots because it becomes too expensive to run bots. Um, so we're also thinking, you know, if you hold NFTs, not every bot will buy NFTs to equip it. But I guess as long as it's, if it's super profitable to buy NFTs and then play with bots, that's also an issue because then the equation is different, right? So I think you need to think about in your ecosystem, okay, what is the path for somebody with a massive bot farm to exploit this? And then you could kind of like simulate this internally first. Um, and I think of course, skill is a big factor. You need to have some kind of skill, but AI, I, I don't actually don't really, I think nobody's really prepared what, uh, it's going to happen. So I guess we will just see, um, with the current AI tools, we're quite confident that, uh, our game is, is good against bots, but I think in the future, I don't really know what's going to happen. So I guess we'll see. Um, but again, I think competitive games, giving rewards to the top percent, top percentile of players. I think probably helps the most to uh, to fight bots. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and so something, something in there um, wanted to touch on around mentioning the kind of creating this barrier to, to earning or to earning anything substantial of having the NFT does, does bring up some thoughts about fixed versus marginal costs. Um, so NFT, so NFT purchase um, generally in, implies like a one-time purchase, um, a fixed cost, um, wherein then the the decision of whether or not to to continue to buy or continue to try to extract value is more on weighing the marginal rewards and the marginal costs of, of continuing to do so, without necessarily taking into account that that fixed cost or you might do it in the beginning to think about does the difference yeah. between the the marginal benefits and the marginal costs um mean that over over time and, and discounting how long this takes us make up for for this initial cost and so yeah i do i do kind of see that um improving things to some extent it does add maybe a, an additional um cost that could stop that makes it harder for someone to start a, a large scale scale bot form uh bot farm but um, yeah, it definitely is important to still think about uh, weighing the the marginal benefit and cost of someone trying to extract value. Yeah, I think the marginal costs, uh, you know, um, I say mental model, I think is a great way to think about this, because if you just buy an NFT and you can play with it forever, there's no marginal cost, then that will be more risky for bots, right? Um, we have uh, consumption in our ecosystem, whereas like the weapons that you have, you consume them as you play. But it's not like they get destroyed when they're at zero. It's just like their earnability goes to zero. So if they're fully repaired, um, we actually call this potential internally, but let's just call durability for making it easier. So if the durability is maxed, you earn the maximum of rewards. But if the durability is at zero, the stats are still the same. You can still play. You just don't earn NFTs with that specific weapon. Um, so I think it's like, that's kind of a bit of a... Um, how do I say marginal cost there as well? So the the bots need to be actually good to kind of use that weapon wisely, consume the durability wisely, and turn that into rewards. You can't just keep spamming the, you know, the solo queue, um, and hope that uh, you get something. The more the more time you throw into this, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great overview of that point. Um, and so switching switching gears a little bit uh, in thinking about the the process of of putting out a web3 uh, a web3 game. And so obviously in game development not everything happens at once. Um, and so how have you gone uh, how have you gone about rolling out the different components of uh, of the game and economy? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Um, I guess first of just sharing some learnings here. I think with uh, Mighty Bear Games so our assumption was, okay, you got to start the community as early as possible, uh, or at least when you have something to you know rally around, and then you just keep building with the community. Um, so we did our fundraise announcement last year, then we uh, launched our Genesis Pass NFT collection. Uh, we call it like the trailblazers of Web3 Gaming. It's kind of basically for everything that we that we build in our ecosystem. So we have like multiple games that we're building. Um, this NFT is for that. And... Uh, we did that and we had some good attention, but then at some point there was not much that came afterwards. Um, so the game was still a bit out. I think it was like three, four months out. Um, and it was really difficult to bridge that time of like initial buzz and then game launched like four months later. I think that was a big learning that you know, I just want to share with the audience um, that I, we, we would do that differently if we could do this again, to be very honest. 
Um, I think it's better if you kind of uh, front load a lot to kind of keep the momentum. Um, I believe like, you know, rolling it out step by step over months or even years is incredibly difficult to, again, keep the momentum, keep the community engaged because there's just so much happening in Web3. Um, attention span is very little uh, for most people because there's so much. Um, and uh, I see, I, you know, I see myself also being in that, in that camp um, where there's just so many things to pay attention to uh, in the space. So I think front loading a lot of your uh, features and your announcements um, is something that we we're exploring um, just to keep the momentum. I think not just the game itself. So right now we have our core gameplay and we have our early access versions, um, but also having meta progression in the game. So with meta progression, I mean leveling up your uh, account, leveling up your heroes, just retention mechanisms that brings people back to the game. Because right now we only have the the core gameplay of like jumping into a match and then you're done with the match and that's it. Like obviously there's no retention there, right? So again, we, we're doing this the step by step rollout where we have the core gameplay, but this is mostly for testing and just getting feedback. Um, and then later in the year we're adding meta progression um, to then focus more on retention. Um, I believe. I, I actually don't know what the best approach to this is, honestly, because I think there's a good value to kind of ship early and get early feedback. So I do believe in that. But at the same time, if you wait for too long to add, again, meta progression, consumption and rewards and all these things, um, that might be hurtful. Example, again, with Steppen, they had um, a great product, they had great faucets, but they added the sinks too late. I think that was also a timing issue. Um, and I think another good example is the beacon on Arbitrum in the Treasure DAO. Uh, great game, really liked their launch um, with the open edition mints of the heroes, and they had a good, um, you know, first version that people can play. Um, but afterwards, you know, they still have to build a lot, and they have to still build meta progression and 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 an actual core loop of the game and all this. So uh, they had good initial traction, um, which I think also slowed down a bit now. So again, it's I think it's it's good to just keep the the cadence of shipping high uh, once you start shipping, like once you enter shipping season, basically. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and there's a good point about sort of rolling out or examples of teams where they've rolled out components of the economy um, while leave while leaving key points that would actually potentially make it sustainable, like key sinks, leaving those farther down on the roadmap, um, that's such a really high risk because you don't know how long it's actually going to take to uh, to roll those out. And also in the meantime, you might be attracting the wrong type of users. Um, and then in that process, realize it's harder than you thought to actually make that switch um, because there's a different motivation for why people are, are joining in at that later point in time. Exactly. I think uh, what you touched on is, is also the the narrative and the image to what you stand for and what you're building. I think Axie, for example, Axie is a great game and Axie is a great like ecosystem that they're building. I mean, it's not just the Axie itself gameplay. It's like the entire ecosystem they're creating with the Ronin chain and all this. Um, but to the Web2 crowd, they look at Axie and it's just like, oh, it's just a Ponzi and people just do this to play money. Um, you know, to your point, it attracts the wrong audience if you don't have all the specific things in place because people try it once and they might get the wrong impression of it and then they never come back. Um, so yeah, very good point. Yeah, and so uh, 
Looking still at uh, Mighty Bear Games as a company, I see that you guys are already six years old at this point, and so you're um, you're coming from the Web two side. And uh, so, in that transition from Web two to Web three, what was that experience like uh, for you and for the company? And what did it actually take in order to make that switch? Yeah, I guess taking a step back and kind of explaining a bit how it came to be that I joined the studio and 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 all that. So. I met Simon, the CEO, uh, in end of 2021, and he was already with one step, like one foot in the Web3 space uh, with the company. So him himself, personally, he was in the space for already three years uh, on you know, investing and, and trying blockchain games. And they were actually seriously thinking about building blockchain games back in 2019. Um, but didn't really see something that, that really made sense until Axie, um, kind of, you know, shocked the world and showed, oh, this is actually viable. Um, and I think that's was for the studio, the moment where, oh, this is the next big thing kind of similar to, and again, this is Simon's personal story. Uh, he worked at a, um, a browser game company in Germany and they kind of missed the switch to mobile gaming. And for example, Supercell. They went all into mobile and they become very successful. So Simon's thesis is like, if there's such a big paradigm shift happening, you have to jump in there with everything you have, because if you just half asset, for example, and uh, don't fully embrace it, you just become obsolete basically. And, uh, yeah. So when I, when I joined Mighty Rare Games, um, basically it was a lot of mindset building because the company basically shifted from web two to web three. Um, and at the same time, we stopped our two projects. So we built uh, games with Apple Arcade before uh, and also with Disney. So one of the, the games was called Butter Royale, which was also Battle Royale with the Apple Arcade. Another one is called Disney Millimania that you know, was built with Disney. Um, and we sunsetted both of those games to kind of really fully focus on Web3. Um, because it's a lot about mindset. It's a lot about company culture um, as well. And uh, we did a lot of like Web3 education. I did a lot of one-on-ones uh, with like, what is metadata? What is OpenSea? What is staking, for example? Um, and we even had like an education budget for for buying NFTs. So if, if uh, coworkers bought their first NFT, they can expense uh, some of that um, to just you know study. Because our thesis really is that um, you can only make good decisions, like good product decisions in Web3 if you actively participate in the communities. If you, you know, buy an NFT, you play some of the games, um, you join the discords and have the conversation there. Um, that is really important. And you can't teach this. Like you have to feel this and experiment, experience this. And, you know, some of our uh, team members, they, they also got rugged. They minted a rug. They got scammed. They, their wallet got stolen. Like stuff like this happens, but you got you got to try it. <laughs> it's bad. Like I don't wish this to anybody, but uh, it's great for education. I think we've all been there. Um, and it's also just the the feeling, the emotion of like you know buying NFT at a high price and the price going down. Just like what that what that means for the user is important to understand because that informs your your game design decisions, right? Like you need to understand what goes on with your users. Um, yeah, so I guess it's it's a matter of company culture. It's a matter of doing the right hires. So I was the first, I would say, crypto native person joining the the company, but we made a few more other hires um, that helped us become more Web three native. But also just a, a, like a lot of coworkers in the team just went really deep down the rabbit hole, and they're teaching me uh, now a lot of things about Web three, which is great. 
Um, and uh, we do all our smart contracts in-house, for example. And uh, yeah, I'm really excited that that uh, the, the team is very open-minded to kind of embrace that shift. Because I know that other game studios, there's, there's some pushback. Um, I guess we can address this here as well. Um, there's some pushback and it's a bit difficult because um, NFTs are still, for some people, something to look down on. Um, our stance is that like we want to be the first game that actually builds a web two, sorry, a web three NFT game that is good for the players, um, and kind of show that it's actually good for the industry. Um, and that's kind of like the, the mission that we have and something that we rally around. Um, to be very honest, we had some uh, folks in the team they were just not fully on board uh, with that vision and that new direction. And you know that's also totally okay. You know they 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 boarded the bus um uh, when when we went in a different direction when we built web 2 games and with disney and now the bus is going in a different direction and i think it's it's totally okay for them to kind of you know get off the bus and we helped them transition out so we you know gave them the option to move on uh with a package and kind of help them find different jobs in the industry um i think that's also something that we we take good care of is, is our people and uh, make sure that you know even if you know, if it's not for them, um, we we made the decision as a company to shift to Web3. So it's our responsibility to also help them, um, you know, move on to something that they're better fit with. Yeah, I, I love to hear that of, of a company just deciding to go completely all in uh, to the industry and um, and and yeah, and, and the impact that that has on the the company culture, and I I'm looking forward to seeing the the output, and I because things that are built by people who fully understand the space, I think, are going to much better encapsulate and create the the best version possible version of it. Um, I can also tell you, just to be very honest, like it's it's also very hard. Like that mindset shift is incredibly hard, and it takes time. Um, but I, I agree again. Um, it's important to do that because I don't really believe that just having a small web three team and a big web two company, I think that that is even more difficult because then the web three team always pushes against, um, let's say maybe decision makers that are not really deep in the web three space. And that's very difficult to get right. Um, so for us, we took the hard path and just said, all right, let's just be all in web three. It might take a year, it might take two years for the transition, but once we're there, we're there. Nice. Yeah, so that, that does sound like sound challenging. And related to that, I'm I'm curious what other challenges you faced in the process of designing the economy. Yeah, so I think I said before where the long term effects uh, only show long term in the economy. I think that's very hard. So you don't really know what is going to happen, and you also don't really know what like outside effects will happen. And it's not just a lot of players coming in. It's also just like crypto crashing, for example, liquidity drying up, um, external factors where all of a sudden the um, the industry is not so excited about NFTs and Web3 gaming anymore. Um, so there's a lot of like these externalities that you just don't really know, but also inside your entire economy, you don't really know how players are going to respond. So I think the most important thing is when you design an economy to like create levers that you can pull if, for example, you have a lot of users coming in and they're over flooding the ecosystem, or if all of a sudden a lot of users are leaving, um, or if you hit inflation, or if you hit deflation, um, and understanding your levers and kind of understanding well when you need to pull them and kind of prepare them in advance. So it's kind of like having a, a card in your back pocket and knowing when to play it. Um, and I think Axie, again, I think Axie did that well, where, I mean, 
yeah, they had a lot of inflation challenges, but I think for Chinese New Year, I think it was last year, they had an event where you could burn axes. So you just or release them, I think was releasing. You release axes and you get some exclusive items, right? Um, and I think these are like on-off events. And we look at this, for example, we we will have hero missions at some point. So when you take a hero, you send him on a mission for, let's say, a week. Uh, and then the hero comes back with rewards. Um, we're thinking if we have too many heroes at some point, we might have hard missions where there is a chance the hero doesn't come back. Um, you know, very, you know, on brand with action hero movies. Um, you know, hero just doesn't make it. Um, but having these levers and also making these levers, uh, having them make sense in your ecosystem and also in the narrative is very important. Um, and also at the same time, like you need to understand your assumptions. So for example, when we start designing an ecosystem, we have our spreadsheets and we have our assumptions of like, this is roughly how many users we will have. This is what they will do. Um, this is how much this NFT probably is going to be worth when we launch. And uh, understanding them is very important because then once it's launched, you need to recheck your assumptions and see where you were wrong. And yes, we are wrong in a lot of ways sometimes. Um, and it's still very early in our ecosystem, right? But um, I think revisiting those assumptions and kind of like readjusting and understanding, okay, if that assumption changes, what does that mean for my ecosystem? Uh, and you need to understand this in advance, to be very honest, because if you're in the heat of it and you hit inflation and, um, you know, the, economy, uh, the, the community is grumpy, for example, because things are not looking good, um, it will get very hectic. So you need to understand in advance what are the things you need to look out for, what are the things you can do to fix it, um, and then kind of like have a playbook there. Um, I think that, yeah, that's very important because once you're in the midst of the, of the moment, it's very hard to respond properly. Yeah, that's that's huge. Um, and even just thinking about this in your early design phase and just having the foresight to create all these levers for when you're going to need them down the line in a live game is, is a very important part of the early process. And then understanding with each of the design decisions you make, thinking about does this close off any of your possibilities of making economic adjustments down the line? And this could even be the case of um, some teams that do early NFT sales, um, if, if it's, if it's a crafting based, uh, economy and again, not, not talking about Mighty Bear specifically, they might, might be implying some, uh, rate of, uh, or some value to, of certain assets or value of users time based on the, how much they're selling initial items for. Um, and so even some stuff that's done very early in the process has the potential to, to limit the design decisions and limit the potential levers down the line. Um, so it should be a, an early process of thinking these things through. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so I have been absolutely loving this conversation, um, but it's about time to start wrapping it up. Um, do you have any closing thoughts? Yeah, I think generally what you said with res like designing an early economy um i think generally we're still early in in just the broader sense of web3 gaming um i see a lot of teams uh you know starting off the success of, of axie infinity and kind of starting being inspired by their model um and you're know, also raising on that on that model um but now we all realize okay this might not work uh so well so i think a lot of teams are are forced to go back to the drawing board and figure out economies from scratch which I believe is great for the for the ecosystem um, because you will see a lot of interesting games and new economy experiments uh, coming out this year and, and the next years. And I'm generally like super excited and bullish to see what what folks are trying out. 
I think we like bear markets are great to try out new things. So uh, I want to see more experimentation um, with, again, with crafting, with consumption, with uh, uh, generally like battle passes um, and uh, just personally very excited to just learn from each other uh, in this space. Um, I guess a lot of closing thoughts. Um, yeah, feel free to reach out to me um, on, on, I guess, my Twitter uh, and Telegram. Um, my Twitter is marnold underscore mch, uh, Michael Arnold on Twitter, uh, for free for any questions, um, or if you see anything interesting, I'm always excited to, you know, learn from others and, and jam and, uh, figure the space out together. Great. So we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Michael. Thank you, Kiefer. Pleasure to be here.